welcome to the episode three of the Be Like Mike miniseries. This is our final episode discussing the final two episodes of the ESPN's documentary about the last dance. With me is Andrew Venerick. And uh, Andrew, I'm assuming you're as excited to talk about this as I am. It was quite a close to an incredible series. Um, but first, I'd like to start off with... Um, a little bit more about Andrew. So Andrew, earlier this year, you made a trip to Hokkaido, Japan. And I'd love for you just to talk about that trip, why you did it, and maybe an experience or two that really resonated uh, Absolutely. On, that, on that journey. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the, the genesis of how, you know, Sam and I connected for those that are listening was, you know, our, our this shared kind of bond and interest over this, this notion of Ikigai. Um, and I, have just always been really intrigued, um, by the Japanese culture, by the Japanese arts, by, um, the anime, um, just the creativeness, um, that, that comes from that country. Um, it's streetwear, everything is, is, is really cool. And, um, ironically, uh, when I was in undergrad, I was taking classes. I was actually was not, I graduated from Creighton university where I was a walk on there. Uh, but I was actually taking classes uh, at Augustana College, or what's now Augustana University in my hometown of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I just happened to have back-to-back classes uh, with, a, with a foreign exchange student, uh, a kid by the name of Sukajiro Hayodo. Um, and uh, he was born and raised in Japan uh, with a name like that. And uh, we, 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 you know, struck up a, a pretty lasting friendship that was, uh, was only for the actual duration on campus of that semester. Uh, but fast forward to 14 years later, um, he happened, he works for a, a Japanese uh, crab company uh, and he was in, uh, he was in Newfoundland buying crab and I convinced him uh, this was last year to, to come to, uh, to New York City to visit and he did and, and we picked up right where we left off and then he returned the favor and invited me to, uh, to, to Japan this January and so I went um, and I stayed with, with him and his, um, his two girls. He's got two do- lovely daughters, Anna and Rena, and his wife, uh, Yuki. And uh, they hosted me in, in their hometown of, of Yonago City. And then Sukajira and I flew to, to Hokkaido and we snowboarded. Uh, we shredded some, some of the freshest powder that I've ever seen and, um, and, and had this incredible time, and, um, you know, and, 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 and really experiencing um, the Japanese culture and um, just the Japanese life from a very authentic and, and really um, kind of first person perspective, because, um, you know, the Japanese culture, they work very hard um, and they don't have the opportunities that a lot of uh, other countries and, you know, liberties that, that we do here in the, in the United States. So Sukajiro had never traveled to Hokkaido. He'd never gone snowboarding in his own country outside of the mountain in his hometown. And so it was really cool for him to get out to see it. Um, and just the food, um, the, the textures and the tastes of the cuisine, um, and then the manners and the respect um, that the culture has. It was really inspiring to come back um, and to see that um, and how they instill, you know, the, those, those, those really just, I don't know, simple traits that, that, that at an early age, I mean, their daughters practice it, their greenings and the bow, and it was, it was really cool. And if, uh, if anyone has an opportunity you know, to go and to visit. Um, it's such a homogenous culture. The people are, are, are so tight and they have so much respect in history and, and so much of the, you know, just going to these beautiful Zen gardens and seeing um, the different temples and things of that nature. It's, it's really rich um, and it's a special place. And 
particularly that northern prefecture of Hokkaido. I mean, that's where, you know, really the ramen originated. That's where some of the freshest sushi in the world comes from. And, um, and obviously, if you like beer, that's, that's where Sapporo, you know, is, is comes from. It was pretty cool and uh, a pretty special trip that obviously 2020, here we are almost in the middle of it um, with a lot of things that, you know, can, can be looked back and looked upon and say, uh, this year sucks. But for me, I, I try to really focus on the positives that, that that 10 day journey in Japan provided and memories that last a lifetime and a, and a friendship and brotherhood with my guy, Sukajiro that, you know, I look forward to many more. When did you come back? I got back on Kobe's, unfortunately Kobe's death, January 26th. I came back to, uh, the news, uh, of, of Kobe's helicopter crash literally as I landed at JFK and, uh, so yeah, have in the past, you know, three months, um, you know, that's where I was, I flew through Seoul, South Korea on my way back to Japan. So this whole pandemic had just, you know, made Drudge Report headlines, I think, you know, earlier that week um, and, and have, you know, been obviously following closely this, this sort of crazy wave um, that's, that's going on. So yeah, it was a, it was a perfect timing because, you know, they couldn't they shut the borders, you know, a few, few days or week later. Um, yeah. But it was uh, it was a pretty special trip, and um, and just to see things from that angle, you know, a lot of people can go to Japan, but um, to be able to go and navigate um, with you know this this really um, uh, interesting perspective and host and guide, um, I was you know going down alleys and corners and sitting in sumo wrestling suites that you know very few people even from Japan get a get to see. So it was awesome. Yeah, what a what a cool experience, especially with a local. Definitely, uh, nothing like an experience through through the through the uh, perspective of a local. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah. So, episodes nine and ten. I mean, I think what we've done in the past, we've kind of gone through each episode uh, sequentially. I think this one maybe we do it a little bit differently. I'd love for you just to start off with uh, what. You know, what are you taking away? What, what did you, uh, what resonated the most with nine and 10? Yeah, there was, there was so much there. And I, I mean, I was probably biased because they're the, you know, the last two and the final two, but um, I mean, they, I, I, I appreciated those more than, than the previous eight for a lot of reasons. I think that, that seeing, seeing Michael Jordan in his greatness and obviously, you know, I was, you know, in what, 13, 14 years old when, when this is all kind of in the, in, in live time, real time. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize truly how, how magnificent and greatness he, he, he is and, and was hearing, you know, his peers and particularly Reggie Miller call him the black Jesus and only refer to him as that thereafter, um, you know, really solidified his legacy amongst the elite as, as, as the greatest to ever do it. But the, the biggest takeaway for me, you know, and as it applies to kind of the six dimensions of well-being um, and, and really examining and kind of analyzing MJ um, and his well-being throughout all this and, and you know, sometimes critiquing or possibly criti criticizing he as a teammate um, and, and the way that he handled some of his relationships with others and things like that. But the, 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 his ability to stay present and practice this mindfulness and, and to be able to to access that and show that. I mean, he was always in the moment and, you know, only the, the amount of extracurriculars that were going into this, especially that, that 97, 98 season 
and all the different, you know, people that are pulling on him and the ticket requests and the interview requests and, and his ability to just know that it's just, it's, it's game by game. And, and um, I don't know, I just thought it was really, it really takes a, a special mind beyond the physical attributes to be able to remain in that moment and to be able to have this vision and to manifest it at every moment. Um, and then to, to go out and, and execute um, with one common goal. It was pretty cool. And it was great to see that um, and how he was just always about, you know, even, even his, his, the way that he spoke, you know, it's just a bump in the road. He, he, would have his, he had this journey and this vision that that was the last dance and he had almost already written it, you know, in his mind. And I'll never forget when he embraced Phil Jackson after they won. And he just said, you know, I kept the faith. I kept the faith. And Phil was like, I bet you did. <laughs> I bet you did. Yeah. And so it was really cool. Uh, what about you? Yeah, I've I, I been mean, with you. The um, Mark Vansel, the guy who wrote the author of Rare Air. I, I mean, I think he just captures it really eloquently when he's talking about how it wasn't Jordan's ability to jump high or run fast or shoot a basketball. It was his that he was present. And he says, like, that, that was the separator. It wasn't, it, and even Jordan talked about that when he said, you know, the first three and the second three, I think it was when they were pinning him down on that question going for seven. And he said something to the effect of, you know, it was, I had tapped into the mental side, like the physical side was one thing, but in the, in the last three, it was tapping into, to the mental side. And so, um, I, I, to me, that really resonated. It just encapsulates well-being uh, in in a you know in the ultimate definition. The other part of it is um, the you know. So we've talked about this in in both episodes. Just you know, do you want to be like Mike? If you want to if you want to to live a, a holistic life of well-being with an emphasis on six dimensions, do you really want to be like Mike? And the more that I thought about that. And then watching that last episode, I think it's the team, right? It's like you've got, you've got Phil at the top as the Zen master who's organizing everything. And Jordan talked about him and they all kind of talked about him and just his presence and, and how he orchestrated everything. And then you have these, these different characters on a team that coalesce together in a way that creates magic, right? And so maybe it's not be like Mike, but it's like, be like the bulls. And you've got your fill at the top, which is ultimately like your decision-making and your executive functions that you want to lead, uh, you know, lead you. And then sometimes you've got to be a, a Michael and sometimes you've got to be a Steve Kerr. And sometimes you got to get a little bit of Rodman gets out and you know, you've got all these different personas, if you will. Um, and to me, that last episode, and there's a couple key points on that last episode really tied that together. Maybe it's not be like Mike, it's be like the Bulls. The Steve Kerr angle, uh, I have such a bitter appreciation. I think this was episode nine, not episode 10, of just who Steve Kerr is. But what an amazing story. What was his father's role? I know they were in He was Beirut, the president but... of American University in Beirut, Lebanon in the early 80s. And, um, you know, I'd heard about that. I guess I didn't realize the... I don't know what, I mean, that was a really, really fascinating, interesting twist. And I thought it was also really interesting 
that both uh, both Kurt and, and, and MJ never never talked about it. They never, yeah. you know, sh- they shared this this really impactful loss of their fathers. Um, that was just it was almost it was so unbearable that they they couldn't even have a conversation to share that that really unique bond. Um, and I, you know what I I don't know you know I'd be curious maybe MJ maybe he never even knew that 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 Steve Curry's dad you know I don't maybe I mean it had this happened you know 15 years earlier mm-hmm. um obviously everyone knew that that MJ's father was murdered but um yeah it it um it was a really interesting and emotional kind of subplot that just struck a, a chord um and and just you know I I think yeah underwritten you know kind of uh provided a different, you know, context for, for how these two shared um, so many similarities, even though on paper, on the court, they were so different. But when you stopped and you listened to Steve Kerr and his mom talk about who Steve was and what, what made Steve Kerr be Steve Kerr, you know, and, and he maximized Steve Kerr to the, to the hundredth percent you know, and he just wasn't blessed with maybe the innate physical attributes that MJ could jump from the free throw line. Um, but he, he, he was the best Steve Kerr in his role. And I think that that was a really interesting way to like, look at all. Yeah. You you brought up a really good point about encapsulating, like be like the bulls. Right. And I think if like the takeaways from this are if you can grab specific strands of Steve Kerr, of Rodman, of Jackson, and you can weave them all together into your own version of being like Mike. Like, I think now we can like talk about practicing, you know, a really strong and, and holistic well-being. And, and that respect that I have for Steve Kerr and hearing, um, you know, how, how he overcame this tragedy went on to just know and talking about again, like the power of manifestation when he was playing on the Cleveland Cavs, he saw John Paxson in the early nineties and he's like, that's who I want to be. That's who I want to emulate. And once he kind of got that into his mind, he, he went out and he achieved that. And I, I just have so much, and you know, you look at Steve Kerr, the coach um, and what that impact has. And it's an interesting, cause I think as I was kind of analyzing, you know, this throughout our dialogue and these kind of mini series that we've spun off with, I've looked at the, the whole series differently because now we kind of, you know, you try to pick some talking points and find some things. And it was really interesting when I was watching this and I heard about Steve Kerr going to Pauley Pavilion in the 70s when his father was a professor at UCLA. And the magic, as Steve Kerr talked about, uh, that that provided, like those are, there's little, there's so many of these little like nuggets in here that you, you look at with a bigger lens and you're like, that is so crazy. Like, how many, like how many kids got to go when they were five, six, seven years old to see John Wooden and UCLA Bruins in Westwood. And then knowing if you did that and you were a six foot, nothing white boy, like the (laughs) impact that that would have on you, you know? And I was like, and then that just wholly escalated the Steve Kerr that we saw. And it was really attributed to his dad taking him to a UCLA game, you know? And then I think that, so it was just, it was really cool and it really humanized the locker room. And it also just talked about like, if you want to try to like parallel this to, you know, guys who are in their, you know, prime of their life athletically, you know, middle thirties, they're not going to talk about some of the more difficult conversations, 
you know, as dudes, because they just don't want to deal with that. And I thought that that was interesting that Kurt and Jordan never had that, that dialogue between them. So, it, it, it was surprising that they had never connected on that conversation. Um, you know, and especially, well, so he, so Gus let, I believe that's his last name. Yes. The, uh, the kind of protector became the father figure for Jordan. And it sounds like they had a very unique and special relationship. And so he still, it's, it, it feels like he still had a, had a, had a void that needed to be addressed. Um, and to your point, maybe he didn't, didn't know, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, it happened when Steve Kerr was 18 years old. So maybe he didn't know at the time. Um, but it was interesting that Kerr didn't engage. Um, maybe it was too difficult for, for him to, to engage at that, at that point. Um, but yeah, I've got a much different perspective. I've always admired Steve Kerr and, and um, you know, what he's done as a coach for the Warriors. I thought he was great as a role player for the Bulls. Uh, but I have a, just a different level of respect and see a lot more parallels between him and Jordan just as competitors and, um, you know, like uh, like individuals who are maximizing every single talent and every single resource that they have. Uh, and I would never hold Steve Kerr in that category until this, until this documentary came out. Uh, what else? Food poisoning. Wasn't the flu. Insane. I'd heard that. I didn't know that it was actual truth. I thought it was just a rumor. Um, what an incredible, incredible story. I mean, the guy, and then the, the one, the one that blew me away was when Jerry Sloan went to the post-game press conference and was the only person in the world that, that knew he, that didn't know he was, had been sick and he had what 30, 40 points in, in, in like 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching that game. And you could tell he was, he was physically pale. Like there was, there was life that was sucked out of him. And then Bill Wennington had some really good insight on those cues when he just said like the whistle would blow and he'd emerge from a timeout and he would just, it would come out like, it was like a, you know, like a machine. And um, yeah, it just, it just, again, just what a, I mean, what a crazy sub story, you know, and um, only George, I mean, even at, at his sickest, he's still the best basketball player on the planet. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's pretty crazy. I, I would, it would be really interesting to somehow like track down those guys that made that pizza for him. You know? Like, is there anyone that wants to come to like the, you know, and be like, I did that. That was me. You know, yeah. what did you put on there? And uh, um, yeah, it just, I mean, even you'd be like Mike eat pizza before, you know, game, game five. I mean, that's um, another thing. It's yeah. just like, yeah. You're eating a you're eating a pizza at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning before yeah. game five. There was a lot of just head scratchers about that whole that whole sequence right there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it seems like that has unlocked a whole new a whole whole new chapter on that on that story. Um, one thing actually that I wanted to talk about before all this, uh, what Phil Jackson orchestrated at the end of the season when they knew everyone was done. Man, that just, I mean, Bill just blows me away. How he did that, the impact that it had on those players, uh, the commitment to the camaraderie and the brother, the unity. I mean, they all go in their separate ways. They had one last moment. And the way he heard was just, uh, it was just magical. 
I don't know. I mean, what were your what were your thoughts on on the coffee can when Michael Jordan became a poet? Yeah, I would have loved to have uh, gotten a gotten a copy of of, of that. I I really uh, yeah. I, it sounds like anything you know Jordan touches, it turns to gold. And I'm, I'm sure it's his his authorship of of a very emotional letter, which which obviously resonated with his teammates that they'd never seen. I'd be curious to see what was said and in just classic Jordan fashion comes out with a poem, you know, it's just like, just as so poetic um, as he is. But um, I think when I was, when I was, uh, when I was kind of thinking of Phil Jackson, you know, and then obviously he went on to win another five rings with the Lakers, you know, I, maybe I always kind of just thought of him as like um, a really, uh, a really gifted, you know, teacher, that was uh, was kind of teaching a class with just a, just star students, you know. But then I kind of hear these little anecdotes about him and how he um, he really instilled um, this mentality that that resonated within the locker rooms, obviously with Chicago and and then on to LA. Um, I mean, he he really is a great great teacher, like the best um, and the best that that has ever done it, in my opinion. Um, and that's not just because he inherited, you know, a Michael Jordan or a Kobe Bryant, like this guy was his ability to, to take it beyond basketball. And this, this coffee can ceremony, you know, I think was, was just another really fascinating tale uh, of how Phil Jackson, you know, I think it started with him, this mindfulness um, and, and preaching, you know, the impermanence of this season and this run and just knowing like, Hey guys, like, you know, MJ and Scott Burrell are probably never going to see each other ever again in life. You know, like this is it. Like we've only got this moment. Um, and so let's, let's bring it all together and, and, um, and just kind of bury the hatchet in this, in this classic Phil Jackson, you know, ceremony. Um, it was a really neat, and I think it's a really cool way to think about something that you like, you're afraid of losing and you're afraid of letting go by just torching it. And just be like, it's going to be, it's gone. Like we can't take it with us. And I don't know that to me was a powerful like imagery that I think was really ingrained in all those guys' heads. And then again, to see like this side of MJ and everyone else to, to write something, which isn't, you know, these guys are professional athletes. They don't really go deep inside to pull out maybe, you know, some, some nerves and, and emotions that they're not accustomed to. And for them to do that, it, it obviously was pretty impactful. And I, I'd love to, that's like one other like little mini series that I, for the last dance producers were to ever like go a little bit further into, I'd love to learn more about what was said and the emotions that were felt because it sounded like, and then that's it. Like, that's what's so crazy about these guys. They're gone. They don't have like 20 year reunions or something, you know, it's just like, they're it's over and they're not buddies. They didn't have cell phone numbers and then texting each other and they maybe see each other in a, you know, hotel room someday down the road in south beach and that's like it and yeah it's uh it was pretty cool which is which is very um it's that's uh a metaphor for life right i mean it's this it's this being present in the moment that vansel that author had also said that the a big downfall of a lot of players is their fear of failure right i think to your point like what what phil jackson did um in a like at a, at the highest level is that he removed a lot of those barriers, those psychological barriers that inhibit growth of an, of a human being. 
right? And then did it in a way where you could have a guy like Rodman disappear after game three again. So, uh, Dennis is going to Dennis. Uh, and, and they, they, that would, that would be so toxic to, to any organization, but an organization like that with a leader like that at the top of the coach like that, um, it, it, you know, well, they lost that game. They lost the next game. Rodman still showed up. I think he had 14 boards and, you know, was going, going off against Carl Malone, the MVP. But to the point is, um, yeah, the, the, his ability to get them focused on the now and embrace the now and live in the now, I, you know, I, Jordan was incredible. Um, and I, you know, I, I think how much of his brilliance was, uh, was created as a result of, not created, not created, Jordan created it, but unlocked because of Phil Jackson uh, and his influence that Phil, that Phil had on, on his game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Phil guided, Phil guided MJ more than, than I think I realized it. And I think having seen this series, seen MJ, you know, with Auerbach was his first coach in the league. And then, and then Doug Collins and then how, how he, how that transition from being, you know, the scoring leader and, and the dunk contest champion to being, the NBA champion really paralleled, you know, his, his, his growth. And, and like you said, I think unlocking is a perfect word that, that really he, Phil deserves a lot of that because I think he was able to tap inside um, a, a, a degree that, you know, a gear inside MJ that even all those other great coaches, the, you know, Dean Smith, the Roy Williams weren't able to. And I think it speaks volumes about, who, who Phil Jackson is as a, as a true teacher and a guide, you know, and really helping Jordan help himself to the best of his ability. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they both, yeah, they both get credit. Cause I guess you could still have the ego associated with the best player in the league, best player in the world to never embrace that and never hit those, those high highs. One note on that when, when Phil Jackson, like I had, ne- I like Phil Jackson, when he, I just noticed a little thing, like when watching it, when he put his hand into the huddle, he was always the first one to put his hand in the huddle. He would always put his palm facing up and all the guy's hands would fall on that, you know, and it, it just, I don't know. I've stuck my hand in many a team huddles and I don't ever recognize the, the guy at the bottom. Like he was, he was really the one holding. And there was, it was an interesting kind of yeah. metaphor of like how he was like lifting everyone up in this palm and he had everyone in the palm of his hands. Yeah. Uh, and every time, you know, they came out of timeout, he was, he was sort of, you know, orchestrating it in, in that fashion. And um, yeah, I thought it was awesome. I mean, what a fun guy to play for. Yeah. That's really symbolic. I never noticed that. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a couple things, couple quotes that I saw in that last part. I mean, I was, I, I think I rewatched that last part five times. Uh, it was just so, so striking, so moving. Um, uh, Jordan said, thanks for the past and moment. Let's make sure we end it right. I mean, uh, that's coming right from the, the Phil Jackson Zen philosophy. You know, Courage said that he, they, they saw Jordan as a bully, but in that moment uh, when he was reading poetry, he showed his compassion and his empathy for his teammates, um, you know, which I think is a great lesson for all of us. Oftentimes it's, you have that next moment. So if you didn't do it the right way uh, in the past, you've got that next moment to get things back on track.
or re or reinforce or reestablish the priority of, of a relationship. Jordan said it started with hope. You know, they do that flashback to him as a rookie talking about how he wants to bring a championship and respect to, to the city of Chicago. And he talks about it started with hope. I think that's especially important in the moment that we're in, in this world right now. Uh, just reflecting on, you know, you have, we all have an opportunity that be hopeful and, um, and what that can turn into or what that turned into for, for the Chicago Bulls. And then he continues on there. He talks about how he just needed one little match to start the whole fire. When Stern said 80 countries, when, uh, when they, I think in 92 or before, probably before the dream team. And now they're in 215 countries and just the impact that he had was pretty amazing. What else, what else uh, jumped out at you? Well, one thing that, yeah, you, you brought up a good point about MJ's like quote about hope. And, you know, I think that um, what I, I was, what I was really Im- impressed with um, in that notion and on that vein was, was his, um, he, you know, he, he really, he really embraced this, the, the community of Chicago. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that that was something that he really made it a point and, and wanted to like, he put Chicago on the map as like a, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a, sure. It was a, you know, big American city, but like people, like it became like an international like hub because that was, that was MJ's, you know, place and home. And, and I thought that he, he did that and his loyalty to the organization, um, you know, he, he, he really came in committed um, to doing that. And I think that was kind of neat. And, and that, that theme kind of, I guess, came out more and more in some of those sign bites that he talked about. And then you reflected back on earlier his career, like he was really doing it. He, he put the whole city on his back too. Um, and I thought that was kind of neat. And especially in today's age where um, you have a, a, a much, a much um, maybe sort of um, individual um, team atmosphere where, where players and professional athletes are, are really focused on getting theirs, you know, um, and, and always trying to, to max out their deal and, or, or go play in the nicer weather or whatever it is. Like, you know, MJ was, was really committed to the, to the community of, of Chicago and, um, and, and think about the impact, the economical repercussions, the financial benefits that, that came from that as a byproduct of, of just Jordan and, and the, the Jordan effect, um, I thought was pretty cool. Um, and just like, yeah, just the way that like he spoke and, and the metaphors that he used um, was also, I mean, this, he was a very articulate um, individual. And I, I just, I, I guess I had forgotten that, you know, of, of what a brand he really built around him um, and his logo and his icon and his, his shoes. And then just the way he, he conducted himself as a really consummate professional, um, you know, showing up, um, and, uh, and, and the respect that he had from, from his peers, you know, watching that intro in, in episode nine, having uh, Reggie Miller, you know, refer to him only thereafter as the black cat Jordan or black Jesus. Um, for, for those guys that were on his level, you know, quote, like as, as peers, I think that, and John Sally, I know made a, made a remark earlier when, when they were discussing the, the early nineties, you know, something about, um, because you know, Jordan's not human. Like they, they looked at him as, as some, I mean, he was, he was beyond anything. And when you get that kind of respect from your peers, um, it, it, it really solidifies your status. Um, and then, and then just the way that 
he was able to dish that out. I think the conclusion of episode nine, when, you know, they had just defeated the Pacers in the Eastern conference finals and he sees Larry bird in the, in the hallway, <laughs> you know? And I mean, I, I mean, he, he, he's a, and bird just knew it. Like he just took it. Like, like, like just get out of here. And I, I just, I mean, he really was the alpha. Um, and he, he I mean, the black Jesus, it's, it's a really interesting notion to kind of think about because, of how much he's, he was worshipped um, from from amongst his, his peers, especially. Well, well so so birds, bird, the the absence of emotion on Bird's face when I can't remember it was a Reggie when someone hit that shot to yeah. go the go ahead shot and they left two seconds on. I, yeah. I think it was less than two seconds. Yeah. The crowd goes wild. They're in Indiana. Crowd goes yeah. wild. Bird doesn't even bat an eye. Right, because really? he knows he's been there. He's been on the other side of it. Yeah. Luckily, luckily. Uh, Jordan missed that shot. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Luckily. I mean, just, uh, that was, that was cool. Yeah. I really appreciate it. I mean, again, just the production value, um, yeah. listen to Jalen Rose in a, in a pinstripe black suit and in, in some like Oak Regal library, like give his, <laughs> his twist on it, you know, like it was really well done. I mean, and all the personalities, um, that this era and this moment and you know, this, this season, I mean, everyone, it's just, it's crazy to think about like, you know, if you were to create kind of a, a family tree, you know, of the, the offspring of, you know, six degrees of separation to MJ, especially, you know, this 97, 98, it's like, I mean, the impact is, it's just un- unbelievable. And it was really cool. It just brought a lot of joy to my life of remembering how happy I was in real time watching this yeah. and how much joy he, he, he brought to so many other people. I mean, this guy was, was larger than life. How about Pippin? Uh, I, I, I walked away with a much, uh, with a different, with a, a, a better appreciation for Pippin. I can't remember what, I think it was game six. Wasn't it game six? Yeah, it was game six. Um, you know, I think Pippin in the earlier episodes was cast as kind of the selfish dude from a financial and from a game perspective. Um, you know, like when Jordan retired the first time and he sat on the bench and didn't get off the bench and, Cast a little shadow on his legacy. Uh, I like the way that they they focused on him in that game six where he hurt his back, and I, I would I would expect every other player, with the exception of Jordan, to 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 not go back out. Uh, but how he went back out and kind of made amends for some of the, at least through the narrative that they had woven uh, in the uh, the documentary, had made amends for. Um, some of the other stuff. And then the fact that he called Kraut, Jerry Krause, the best manager in history. Uh, I, I thought that was a, a nice touch as well. Whether he said that because he just felt like he needed to say it or he said it because he was authentic. I think he's at a stage in his life and at a level of, of uh, prominence where you don't say something like that unless you, you actually believe it. Uh, that All that was, was a nice um, you know, silver lining on the Scotty Pippen story. Definitely was. Yeah. He, he, I think, yeah, time heals. Um, I think he's, 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 you know, made, made amends with his past and kind of the, you know, initial treatment that he received. And I mean, it worked out. I think I, I checked a, a stat that, I mean, it came out to career earnings. I'm pretty sure Scottie Pippen made more in NBA salaries than Michael Jordan. Hmm. Yeah. So he got paid once he went on to the Portland trailblazers um, and the rockets, and then he finished his career with the bulls. He, he made up for it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was kind of interested in, in, in really seeing that light on, on Goss. Right. Yeah. So, so MJ had lost his father, um, you know, and, and, and I, I guess it was also interesting and in, in really trying to kind of psychoanalyze MJ, you know, the guy lived, a, I mean, he was bigger than life, but yet at the same time, he lived a very lonely, secluded life because yeah. anytime he left his hotel room or anytime he left the locker room, you know, it was, it was just, it was, it was pandemonium and, and, and so to be able to <clears throat> become very intimate or, you know, be, to even trust anyone had to have been very difficult because he just wasn't, he didn't have a lot of time with anyone. Um, and so he, you know, he developed this relationship with Gus, the security guard, you know, early in his career when he got injured um, with the Bulls and, and Gus was kind of there. And, and, and I think he referred to him multiple times. He called him a protector. You know, he called him a protector and he was a former Chicago police department, um, you know, sergeant and, and, um, but he was more than that. And obviously once MJ's dad died, um, you know, he, he sort of, you know, accepted this role as, as, as sort of a, you know, somewhat of a father figure as well. And, you know, a couple of things that, um, one, it was, again, when you talk about like MJ as, as a human and, and, and MJ as a practitioner of well-being you know, he was listening to the interview of Gus's wife. She acknowledged that Michael Jordan was the first one that recognized Gus had was sick and she mm-hmm. suggested he call the doctor. So there you go. You see again, this like this sort of the empathy that maybe not a lot of people talked about, but this compassion of like looking out for him, um, which yeah, I think if he didn't have a lot of people, he didn't have this massive entourage, but like the people that he really cared about his loyalty was, was never in question. And then, you know, Gus was sick. He came back for that epic game seven Eastern conference finals. I think his other, you know, best friend, George mentioned it was, he kind of felt like the band, the band had gotten back together, gave him that, that, that boost, that momentum to get in the finals. And then what do you know, Michael Jordan has, has the wherewithal and the conscience and the compassion to get the game ball for Gus, you know, yeah. and deliver that to him. I thought that was, that was pretty special. And it, it just showed, um, you know, really what, what a friend MJ was if, if, if he had your back and, um, and Gus had him, you know, for, for a long time. And it, it's crazy. You see the entourages and the, the social clubs that, that a lot of professional athletes and high profile celebrities run with. And here you have Michael Jordan hanging out with, you know, a couple of, I mean, early 50, you know, mid 50 year old guys, one yeah. of them's a you know retired limousine driver, and the other's a retired you know police department sheriff. Like I mean, he he definitely was di- was cut from a different cloth, and um, and I don't know. It was just really neat to see that side of him, loyalty and compassion that uh that that he practiced for Gus and, and returning the favor, which he had you know done for him many times, calling him at two three in the morning, you know, and um, right. and and that was pretty cool. I I appreciated that 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 light of again that kind of humanizing. MJ for, um, for who he was as a, as a pretty darn good person. Um, even though it, it was interesting when his sons came on and acknowledged that they never, his dad never let him beat him in one-on-one, you know, it was like, <laughs> so he was MJ and, uh, he, he was the greatest, but it was good. It was cool to see that light of him and what he did for Gus. It, as you're describing that right there, I was thinking back to his, his, um, eulogy, the speech that he gave at Kobe Bryant's ceremony. 
and talking about how Kobe would call him at like two or text him at like two o'clock in the morning. And that sheds a whole different light on that relationship that those two had. Um, and just his commitment that he had to, to Kobe and that relationship. I, you know, that, I think that's, that's an interesting extension right there. Um, seven, you think they would have won seven? I do. I really do. I think that, um, I think when, when I, when I heard MJ talk about, you know, um, the mental fortitude that he was, he was practicing and, and that he had learned and the craftsmanship, um, yeah, I still think, you know, I mean, with his athleticism, you know, the next year, who knows that they could have picked up another, you know, solid kind of X factor piece. Um, the momentum, the, that, that, that what Reggie talked about, you know, in, in Reggie Miller's sound bites of that, that championship DNA, you know, that, that, that momentum that had come from just feeling like it's, it's theirs to lose. Um, I really do. And it was really interesting to see MJ really get like, kind of like, I don't know, it was almost like a sense of like frustration when he acknowledged and admitted that he just couldn't accept it. Uh, It's just something I can't accept, you know? And um, I don't know. It's just uh, that, that had to have been a tough, tough pill to swallow when you're just like, I got to go out like that. And I can't even, you know, I'm not even, I'm entitled to defending it and I I can't do it. Um, Yeah. It's an interesting juxtaposition with the Phil Jackson be present you know, control what you can control. That was another thing that they, that uh, Arthur had said that he only focuses on controlling the things that he can control. And if it doesn't, he doesn't waste any energy on it on the court. But then you fast forward however many years later and he's still got some regret about not going for seven. I, I, yeah. I thought that whole sequence about, you know, going out on top. Do you, is it, is it the, do you, does you feel, do you feel good about it? Or is it, um, I can't remember what the, the word that he had used, but, Maddening. Maddening was the word. Maddening. Yep. Um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting takeaway that he achieved just this incredible level of greatness, but still has regret 25 years later. And what, you know, what, what can we, what can we learn from that? Yeah. I mean, he would, they would have had to have played against Tim Duncan and uh, David Robinson and I, there was another seven-footer on that team. I forget who it was. And then Steve Kerr was actually playing for that team. Steve yeah. Kerr got traded to, uh, yeah. to the Spurs. Uh, so who knows if Steve Kerr would have gotten traded if they would have committed to seven. But, yeah, that, all of it, that, that whole – his response to that question I thought was, was fascinating. Uh, Rodman, you want to talk about Rodman real quick? I mean, come on, man. He goes to uh, – he just disappears – again and 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 shows up i think he went to detroit wasn't he in detroit doing a wwf team hulk hogan Hogan on a wrestlemania two hundred fifty thousand dollars to go and it's it's um, just it's so incredible i mean i didn't realize like that subplot went i i don't i don't know I, i just didn't remember it um i mean what i i mean that's why i like these guys were like i mean they were beyond and this was before the social media where every single move and and you know step was tracked through twitter and instagram and facebook live stories like 
these guys were just so big. I mean, and, and it, it just, it just, it, it transcended the sport of basketball. You have this guy, I mean, he leaves the NBA finals with permission, you know, and, and just goes. And I don't know, it just, it, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty amazing to like, think about like what the, what the, the, the level of confidence and just like assurance in the locker room must have been to just be like, yeah, like that's Dennis, you know, and he just kind of has his, he has his needs. They're different than mine and yours. And we just have to kind of, you know, let him be him. And, and then, you know, that, that wasn't, it wasn't even, yeah, it was, it was just what it was. And, and I don't know, it was really incredible. Really incredible. I mean, you can't even script that, right? No, I mean, you can't. You go, they win game three. He doesn't show up for practice. And then someone turns on the TV and they see him hitting somebody with a chair at a WWF uh, event in, in Detroit. I mean, it, but then I thought what was really insightful was the practice when he did come back. And you can tell Phil Jackson's not happy with it. He calls him out. I can't remember what he says, but, but Jordan's just calling him Rodzilla. He's like, Hey, Rodzilla. And it just, so it's, it's so that that's fascinating to me where he's just on people so much that they, they're afraid of him, but then you do something like that. And it's, it's not, he just, he knew what, uh, what, what buttons to push and when to push them. I got a kick out of seeing seeing Rodman just randomly appear with the Hulkster. That was amazing. Another random moment was down Leonardo DiCaprio question mark. That was weird. I'm so happy you brought that up. I I thought that was, that was like, geez, how crazy is that? I mean, first of all, it solidifies Leo as like the coolest movie star. I mean, here he is in like, then late night, I'm like, who, what the heck? How is this guy getting backstage? I mean, <laughs> yeah. wearing like a Boston, like Bruins, you know, baseball cap too. Like, I mean, what yeah. a, what a, what a star. And I, I didn't know, it looked like almost that, was that Toby Maguire? That was a young Toby Maguire that was with him or who was in his entourage? Because I, I just thought, I mean, like, I, I mean, I was like, I felt like I needed to, you know, get Leonardo's, you know, autograph after you know i was like god that's really cool how did you go meet you know jordan after no that was that was really really interesting and um furthermore it was in salt lake too it wasn't even like i mean i don't you know yeah yeah, that was just a very interesting um and cool like that would be another interest you know perspective to like talk to leonardo dicaprio about like like, you know i'd like to unpack that a little further because yeah i was blown away by that as well i'm happy it was just a very it just, it just, I mean, it just, again, showed you how big these guys were. Like, everyone wanted a piece of them. Yeah. You know, yeah. Rodman's dating Carmen Electra. Like, you know, the hottest movie stars coming in the locker room after the game. I mean, it was just, it was, they were, they were huge. Um, yeah. It was, it was pretty special. Yeah, right after that, that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio um, cameo, the, I thought it was really cool when Carl Malone went into the bus and shook their hands. Uh, I mean, that was, that was really classy, especially the fact that Carl Malone was the MVP that year. It looked like they were about ready to make a, make, make the run. Scotty's her, who knows if Scotty's even going to play game seven, if they take it to a game seven and, you know, Carl goes into the bus and 
takes the high road. I, I was yeah. really impressed. Yeah, I was mailman. impressed with that. And also I think Stockton had done that. They were waiting for him in the, in the, uh, in the hallway after an earlier game as well. I mean, you know, I, I forgot what a cold blooded killer John Stockton was, man, yeah. that duo, the mailman and him were, were the stuff that NBA jam legends are, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> yeah, it was really cool. And again, it goes back to just the amount of respect that these guys had, even when they, 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 they lost, they just, they still respected him, but Hearing, hearing Stockton sound bites, I thought was pretty cool about like how, you know, you had to have that mentality that like, sure, it was Michael Jordan, but you, you couldn't really look at him as that, that God-like, you know, aura. You just had to go in there and battle and compete. Um, because if you did, you didn't stand a chance. Um, it, was, it, was, it was interesting. Uh, but yeah, those are some, God, those are some good matchups. The uniforms, the old Utah Jazz unis. I mean, everything yeah. about it was just, it was classic stuff. Really cool. Uh, all right. So any, any last uh, final thoughts before we wrap up our Be Like Mike slash Be Like the Bulls miniseries? Uh, man, this has been really cool. This has been obviously, um, I mean, the highlights of, uh, of my week, um, the past couple. I mean, um, this, whole, this whole docuseries is, is, you know, will forever go into to history as, as some of the greatest television and, and just sports history, maybe even just culture history. I think that's maybe an interesting point that I'll, I'll touch on is, is Obama in his final, you know, interview towards the end was, was just talking about how, you know, the, the impact that, that MJ and these Bulls had that, that transcended basketball and transcended, um, you know, the game. Um, into culture, into Americana, into, you know, what it, what it was like to be, you know, um, an American. I mean, and, and you know, and, and, and it offered a glimpse of, of our, you know, culture and our society to those people that were, you know, transmitting it through this, this game and through Michael Jordan. And I thought that that was really neat um, because it, it really did. These guys went beyond basketball. I know the, the impact that Jordan's had off the court, you know, in the, in the shoe game um, and just the, the street game, you know, is, 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 is really neat. Um, and, and just his, you know, the, 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 the craftsmanship is that word that, that stuck out for me from, from Michael Jordan and how he, he really dedicated himself to just making himself better every game, um, every year. And, and I think that's something that, you know, we talked about this in the last episode, kind of that mama mentality that, that Kobe branded and, and popularized, but really, really Jordan preached it and practiced it. Um, and that's something that I think if you want to be the greatest, the sacrifices that come with it, you got to look at what, what Jordan did and um, you know, what he, what he overcame um, and, and, and just find that to be so inspiring to know that really anything, anything is possible. Um, and to use that quote, all, it, all it takes is a, you know, a single spark to start a prairie fire or whatever you know, how he just really got that momentum. And, and once you can get that momentum and that force and that power of, of positivity and gravitas, and once things can get rolling like that in, in your favor, um, it's a contagious energy. Um, and he was able to electrify that amongst his locker room and teammates, the whole city of Chicago and, and just the NBA. I think it elevated everyone's game as we see, you know, NBA and players today and athletes as a whole. So um, I really enjoyed it. It's been really fun to kind of unpack it with you and to offer your perspective and how it kind of parallels, 
these some you know dimensions of, of well-being as you know we're currently in a in a crisis where you know the the conversation shifts around a lot of you know our physical conditioning you know in in the covid virus and also the economic impact but you know what what toll is this really taking on, on people's well-being and hopefully we can all kind of search within and, and find find the inner mj and the whole collective chicago bulls 97 98 last dance and uh and use it to, to shine some light and, and perspective on, you know, how we can uh, improve in those six different pillars uh, of well-being. Yeah, I've, uh, I've really enjoyed this, Andrew. I appreciate you uh, jumping on here and, and having uh, three rap sessions about a, a very impactful, influential documentary that I think in a lot of ways represents more, it represents what Jordan represents to, um, you know, to the world or maybe even what the bulls and that run represent beyond the game of basketball. Uh, you know, it's been a lot of fun just breaking things down, looking at it through a different lens. It's, I, I would have watched the documentary, but watching the documentary with an emphasis on well-being definitely added a different level of engagement uh, for me personally. Um, you know, I, I'll just come back to that part that that MJ said about about hope. I think that's especially important in this moment that we're in right now. And being present, being mindful, uh, being optimistic about uh, a brighter tomorrow, um, controlling the controllables, uh, all of that I think is especially important for for all of us. Um, so on Tuesday, May twenty sixth at two p.m. Pacific. Andrew and I will be joined by Dr. Jake Smith, who was uh, an instructor at the Flores MBA program at LSU. Uh, Jake uh, has done research on pressure, motivation within the organizational uh, culture. Uh, some of his research looks at both the sports lens and the, the business lens or the organizational lens. Uh, so we'll have that live session on Tuesday, May 26th. Uh, you can find more information in the show notes or at the website, gbg17.com. And um, with that, thank you, Andrew. We look forward to seeing all of you on uh, Tuesday, May 26th at 2 p.m. Thank you, Sam. Be well.